Places we are just uh, excited. We have been excited about it for for many years. We continue to be excited about it because uh, number one, as you mentioned, it's tough, and therefore competitors build a very good moat around them. If they well build a sizable company, it's very difficult for an upstart to challenge them. So number one, it's just difficult to get this space. Uh, which is why when we look at new marketplaces nowadays, we look at those that serve very niche markets, and we see their potential in expanding from that niche market to markets that are maybe related or ancillary to them. We want to invest in companies that have a regional ambition, if not global ambition. But we start small. We have to start from their own country first. And for countries such as uh, Indonesia, you have a quarter of a billion uh, population, which is already sizable enough. And deals or startups there tend to get um, big fast. And also because venture capital is also flowing into Indonesia. But I always like to point out that uh, there was a HSBC study that was done some years back, and that despite the size of Indonesia, it is really no different, not much bigger than the size of one. Uh, Shandong in China itself. So as big as we would like Indonesia to be of Vietnam and, and all the other cities and so on, China is still much on a scale that is just so um, so much more different. This is your host Oscar Ramos, and you are listening to the Asia Startup Pulse podcast. Your looking glass into the Asian investment and startup ecosystem, hosted by the Global Venture Capital Fund SSB and its cross-border accelerators, Chan Accelerator and Mox. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. So welcome everybody to another episode of the Asia Startup Pulse. And today we have another amazing guest, James Tan, managing partner in Quest Ventures. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Oscar. Before founding Quest Ventures, James was a co-founder and CEO of 5521, when Nasdaq listed an e-commerce company on the group buying uh, space in China, where that back in the day had an amazing number of competitors and that scaled uh, to over 5,000 employees and 200 cities. He is one of the few foreigners that has been able to build and successfully create an internet company in China. James, what did you learn from this era? early days on very, very fierce competition in that space in China that makes you today a better investor. Thank you, Oscar. It's a pleasure to be on this show. My name is James Tan, and uh, as Oscar mentioned, I co-founder and COO of uh, 5521 that grew to from well, grew from Beijing to cover more than 150 cities across China itself and uh, listed on NASDAQ. It was a challenging environment. As uh, Oscar has also mentioned, we had more than 5,000 competitors at one time. And the challenge for us was really how to regrow fast. And as uh, we move along this entire podcast, you will, when we talk about marketplace and so on, it's really about moving fast. And yet at the same time, also focusing on small niche markets that are really champions for your product and advocates for your product that will actually help you promote it to the rest of their communities. So be ruthless in growing the market and then focus on uh, niche markets also. So James, you went from a very operational, a CEO, definitely very, very operational role 
in a startup to investor. How was your experience there? Something that you can use today to better select potential investment opportunities or better support uh, portfolio companies? Okay, Oscar, that, that question is so multifaceted. I can I can spend hours explaining it. For and as you know, uh, having invested in so many companies through China Accelerator, a COO or CTO or CXO role in uh, a Chinese company really stretches you because you're not just managing a large group of people, but you're also managing them across different cities and uh, different cultures also. So at the COO, my role was multifaceted, but we also took part in fundraising because when, you know, as an investor, when you invest, you also want to know or meet the key founding team. So the operational experience part and also fundraising part have really been helpful in started. Uh, quest ventures together with the rest of the team knowing what goes on behind the scenes in a startup knowing what goes on uh, when operations are concerned when customer service thing and so on and so forth has been really critical because now when the entrepreneur says something or asks something and so on they know that you are speaking from a background of someone who has been there in their shoes uh, many years ago uh, and now are here perhaps putting on the same mindset that they have as an entrepreneur and now evaluating their company so the whole experience has been very helpful for Quest Ventures and I'm still very proud that today, even in Southeast Asia where I function now, and there are still very few firms, you can count them on one hand, very few firms that have investors who used to be entrepreneurs. So James, can you share a bit more about, about Quest Ventures? I mean, what is the typical investment? What are the areas that you're looking at, the industry that you're looking at, and how did you decide to start Quest Ventures? Well, uh, Quest Ventures is a regionally focused fund. The focus on Southeast Asia and Central Asia, or what we broadly term as emerging Asia. We focus on what we call the digital economy, which really covers everything under the sun. The main reason of which we do not know what is going to happen in one, two, three years' time. And we want to be open-minded to it, which is why we term it as digital economy. Uh, we typically invest in the early stage, and for us, that means seed to Series A. We do participate from time to time on pre-Series B deals, but uh, we are really keen and excited with early-stage uh, companies. Good. And uh, how many investments do you make every year? Because you are very, very active too. Quest Ventures today has an active portfolio of, of about 90 companies. Uh, this is a result of us investing in the region, especially in Southeast Asia itself. We also run our programs in uh, Central Asia through our base in Kazakhstan and through programs are through our base in Vietnam. Good. So, James, I'm going to focus more on this experience that you have in operations, um, particularly your uh, your experience in marketplaces, no? because at the end of the day, like a 55 to 1 as a Groupon type model, it was somehow a marketplace where you were connecting the vendors on one side to the potential buyers looking for uh, looking for discounts on, on the other side of the of the marketplace. And uh, and marketplaces are are tough. Marketplaces are difficult. What what do you think is like the most challenging part or most challenging achievement that you learn to overcome as the operations person in such a large scale marketplace? So on the uh, key success factors. For 551 back then, we were really focused on being fast and really focused on building niche markets. Niche markets could be verticals. It could also be just on a particular city and serving that city very, very well. So when we expanded, again, we wanted to be fast because we want people to be able to come onto that single URL 
and be able to find stuff that they need or they want. And uh, we are going to turn off a lot of people in a lot of cities if we don't have something in that city. So there was a need to be broad-based. But as I also mentioned, there was also a very deep need to be, a very keen need to be very deep in uh, certain verticals. For example, a vertical, vertical like uh, female care, for example, uh, cosmetics or fashion or food. So for broadly, for broad markets, we are looking at uh, things that we need every day, food, entertainment, transportation, and so on. Uh, for niche markets, we are looking at, say, female care products. So these need to have like a, this, um, this balance between the world. You need to go niche, but at the same time, you need to go broad enough so you can always try to find a way to create liquidity in that marketplace and make sure that, that anybody that comes is able to find what they want. And at the same time, everybody that offers products is able to find what they need is one of the key challenges of, of marketplaces because to a certain degree, um, you have two clients. You have to satisfy double demand at, uh, at the same time to make sure that um, that like a transaction happens and your customers are, uh, are happy. You, you've invested, I mean, you obviously learned a lot and you were very successful doing that. And, and you took those learnings to, to invest in, a, in, in marketplaces. Why, why are you um, excited about marketplaces as a, as a founder of one and then as a very active investor in the space? Yeah, on marketplaces, we are just uh, excited. We have been excited about it for many years. We continue to be excited about it because uh, number one, as you mentioned, it's tough. And therefore, competitors build a very good moat around them. If they, well, build a sizable company, it's very difficult for an upstart to challenge them. So number one, it's just difficult to get this space, which is why when we look at new marketplaces nowadays, we look at those that serve very niche markets and we see their potential in expanding from that niche market to markets that are maybe related or ancillary to them. And from that base, I'm pretty sure that they can continue to grow. It's very difficult to be broad-based today. Uh, and broad-based marketplaces uh, really don't get our attention at all as, a, as an investor. But niche marketplaces, yes. Uh, so these niche marketplaces, how do you evaluate that a niche is large enough? No, because as an investor, at the end of the day, you're looking for companies that have a, a big enough market potential. So how do you evaluate that, that size where you see, okay, it's not super broad, so there's a space for some competitive advantage or, or, or unique value proposition, but at the same time, the market is, is large enough? Yeah. So I think it's difficult to predict how large the market will be depending on what kind of uh, related fields that the marketplace choose to go into. I mean, for example, if we were to go into a vertical marketplace like female cosmetics in Malaysia right now, and they say it's halal or it's halal uh, cosmetics, well, they could potentially go the route of being not halal cosmetics or they could go the route of being fashion for Malaysia or they could continue to be halal and now expand into Middle Eastern markets. So there are just so many routes that potential marketplace could do, which is why at the point of investment, we just just a lot of conversation with the founders to understand where their strengths and weaknesses are and so on, just like you would evaluate a startup coming into China Accelerator. And then, of course, if they've been running the marketplace for a while, then we look at key marketplace metrics that we always look at. For example, profit margin if they have, uh, transaction volume, competition that they are potentially in because surely they are not the only ones who have recognized the potential in that female cosmetic space. Pricing, if there are shipping costs at all, target audience, so on and so forth that we always look at for a marketplace. 
So, I mean, I'm going to go back to the key metrics for marketplaces and understand them better. What I want to understand is uh, your perspective on is what makes a marketplace better than a B2C company? For example, in the in the specific example that you mentioned, where you're talking about a, about a cosmetics um, marketplace, I mean, I can see that obviously having that niche specific on, on halal and in one single region gives you different uh, different options to to scale. I mean, you can geographically, you can change category, uh, you can expand to other other uh, demographics, and that obviously gives you opportunities to to grow and. Yeah, just said, like depending on how things go, you'll decide one direction or the one. You don't need to you don't need to be specific. But what gives a competitive advantage a marketplace to be able to to serve the customer? Because at the end of the day, at least one side of the marketplace, the the consumer don't necessarily see a big difference or or, or do they? Uh I'll say for most of the consumers who are not so tech savvy, there's really no difference buying a product from say a marketplace like Taobao or a vertical specific platform there's really no difference to them because to them they, they just want well is it a good price i'm not even talking about cheap price but is it a reasonably good price are you going to deliver to me at all and are you going to deliver to me on time and if i don't like what you deliver to me can i get a refund i would say those are the simplest considerations that any any consumer buying something online would have then the question is why will a marketplace be uh, somewhat different or even better than uh, e-commerce marketplace there's no clear demarcation that, oh, once you do a certain thing, therefore a marketplace is better, or once you do that thing, then the e-commerce market is better. Do you trust that brand? For example, on a marketplace, a company like Carousel, which is Southeast Asia's largest C2C marketplace, uh, where you can transact uh, not just pre-love or used products, but also new products. The onus really is on the buyer and the seller making sure that they do their own due diligence on each other before they transact but you are probably going to get a much better price than if you were to go on to a uh, normal B2C or normal, a normal B2C website or even a B2B website. So are you willing to live with some of that risk uh, in order to get that pricing, the price that you want? Um, there are also other factors to consider uh, from an investment perspective rather than a consumer perspective. As I mentioned earlier, it's much harder to do marketplace because you, you, uh, if you are building a two-sided marketplace, that's tough. But if you are going into a multi-sided marketplace, that's even more tough uh, versus a B2C or marketplace, a B2C uh, website. A B2C website is simple as it gets from you purchase somewhere from some distributor and then you are selling it to a consumer base that you hopefully already has. Whereas a marketplace, you have to source both or you have to source people who transact in both and it's much harder. But we like it because the minute we get, we see some of the uh, figures inside there, some of the key figures that we track, we know that they are serving a niche market very well and this niche market can expand to ancillary markets. Then we know that this is a very viable mode that can be protected against with some capital that we can inject. So, I mean, obviously, marketplaces, you have more supply for the demand. So that excess of uh, supply allows to have a better value position in terms of potentially uh, pricing, competition, variety, etc. But at the end of the day, I mean, when you are working in a marketplace, you have limited control on the, on the quality and the consistency of, um, of the service. How do you handle that? How do you work on, uh, on making sure that as a marketplace, you can make sure that there's an association to your brand that is not damaged uh, by, by the individual merchants that are 
uh, offering services to the marketplace. So there are safeguards that you can put in place that are more positioned as convenience rather than safeguards. You know, there are safeguards nonetheless. For example, offering to handle logistics for the buyer and seller. So you know, when, when someone buys and say, you know, can you offer your own logistics platform? And the logistics platform might still be an outsourced party, but at least you are aware as a platform level, you are aware that the transaction is really being done, that the good has been delivered as promised. And if there is a need to collect a return product, then the same platform can also handle that. And because everything is tracked on a platform that you are providing, there's a certain level of quality assurance that you can implement. You can also implement, for example, uh, which is very common nowadays, uh, buyer and seller rating and so on. We are very aware that some of these things can, necess- can necessarily be uh, user-generated and uh, also be a certain, a certain extent uh, fake. But by and large, they are significantly trustworthy enough that uh, they, they serve as a very viable way to have a check and balance. So it's a big challenge to work on, try to keep that authenticity sometimes of the of the information. And um, and how, I mean, these, these challenges that some of the marketplaces might face to try to, to keep the consistency potentially can also turn into into opportunities. No? Obviously, something that uh, that the best players in the market can use to to try to differentiate themselves. Having worked in a super competitive market like, like China, and now um, investing mostly in a, in an up and coming region, also with a lot of activity like Southeast Asia, what is the most interesting marketplace uh, operation innovation that you've seen? Okay, Oscar, I want to go back to uh, what you pointed out earlier. It's just difficult, which is why uh, marketplaces are just difficult, which is why we want to focus on niche and when we identify power users, uh, we want to really make them successful so that they continue to drive the liquidity that we see in the platform. And in China itself, when we see power users, that same power user you know, could be in Beijing, but the, the, the buyers can be across uh, the whole of China itself because you know logistics and so on is, is so convenient and so prevalent across uh, China itself. But in Southeast Asia, when we identify power users, they have to be in the particular city or country that they are in. And it's very hard to replicate this or scale this across uh, Southeast Asia. So you have power users that you can identify in, say, Indonesia, and maybe even in uh, Jakarta itself, which does not translate to uh, having liquidity in uh, Malaysia. Uh, so you have to do the same thing, identify power users, for example, in Malaysia, identify power users in Philippines, and so on and so forth. So those are the challenges that we see in a marketplace in, in China versus marketplace in Southeast Asia. And of course, because uh, there are different cultures and so on, something that is being driven by, say, a famous Wang Hong or movie star or something like that in China itself, in Beijing, for example, is just not going to happen. A, a Wang Hong in, in Jakarta is not going to have the same influence effect on the buyers and sellers in, in Malaysia and Philippines and Singapore and so on. So there are just this, all, all these uh, nuances here that will not scale. In talking about this geographic uh, expansion, I think I mean one of the key ideas that uh, that is coming is that you know, I mean there's a feature, there's an opportunity on marketplaces, but you need to take a niche approach, and that niche approach can be seen from from different angles. But obviously, in, in an area like Southeast Asia where you have a lot of uh, islands, particularly when you're thinking about uh, about any type of marketplace that moves any type of a good or or an offline service. 
the um, I mean the geographic limitation becomes a big um, a big thing. You see, um, um, really, do you look at niche uh, opportunities that from from a relatively early stage of the company they look at a, at, a, at the opportunity regionally, or or is this something that there's always um, a more regional approach to to start? Yes, we want to invest in companies that have a regional ambition, if not global ambition. But we start small. We have to start from their own country first. And for countries such as uh, Indonesia, you have a quarter of a billion uh, population, which is already sizable enough. And then, uh, deals or startups there tend to get uh, big fast. And also because capital is also flowing in, venture capital is also flowing into uh, Indonesia. But I always like to point out that uh, there was a HSBC study that was done some years back and that despite the size of Indonesia, it is really no different, uh, not much bigger than uh, the size of one uh, Shandong uh, in, in China itself. So as big as we would like Indonesia to be of Vietnam and, and all the other cities and so on, China is still much on a scale that is just so, um, so much more different. We want to, so coming back to our investments again, we want to make sure that they can stand on their own in their own city or country that they are from and then use that as a base to expand uh, regionally. We don't have a magic formula to it. If you look at someone big like Grab versus someone big like Gojek, which are the DD equivalents in Southeast Asia itself, Grab uh, started in Malaysia, relocated to Singapore and expanded to the rest of the region in Southeast Asia very fast very quickly, very early in their, their life. Gojek started from Indonesia, stayed in Indonesia for pretty much the early part of their life and only chose to expand outside of Indonesia uh, recently. And I would say that in a, from a regional perspective, Grab is definitely the winner. Gojek is still far and away, very far behind. So do you really want to be standing very strongly at home, but yet losing the rest of the regional story? Or do you want to be like Grab, which took a risk and go regional from day one or as early as possible and uh, fighting a war on many, many fronts? Uh, we would encourage Quest Ventures. We definitely want to encourage them to go the Grab way, where go out when you can and fight a war on many, many fronts because that's just the way Southeast Asia is. Otherwise, we are going to uh, be like Gojek, a unicorn in its own rights, but really a one-country unicorn, which is not what we want to uh, want to invest in. We hope you're enjoying the episode. And if you're an entrepreneur building a cross-border business, feel free to contact us at chanaccelerator.com or mobileonlyx.com. So you mentioned something that is very important. I mean, this debate of um, internationalization is always a, and when is the right time to do that? It's, it's always a big, big conversation for companies that that on one side, they want to have global aspirations, but they don't want to spread themselves very thin um, before they're, they're ready for uh, for scale. And, and I want to use this also to come back to the metrics. Um, when do you think is the right time to start thinking or, or work, not just thinking, but working on, on the internationalization of a marketplace? Okay, so for marketplaces to internationalize, as I mentioned, it's tough. Um, it's tough to scale beyond a city or a country that you're currently in, but you have to start. And the way we envision it expanding is, are you steady at home? Are you very stable in the country that you originate from? That if your expansion to the second city or second country 
falls flat, you know which areas to cut or to pull back from and continue to have a viable base to, to, to stand on. And that base could very well be the base that you started from or could be the second or third home that you started from, that, that you expanded into, that you are now uh, focusing your energies on to. Um, and when you go into every city, it is always good to have a predefined budget in mind, meaning I'm going to expand a uh, million dollars into the, my expansion in uh, city B or country B. And in, within that limited amount of budget, we need to uh, create X amount of liquidity and X number of users of which X num Y number of them have to be uh, power users. Uh, and you can define it whether it's 30 days power user or seven days power users and so on. There are different ways to track. And as long as you have these predefined uh, parameters in mind before you go into a city, and then I think uh, you're setting yourself up for a higher chance of success uh, rather than going in and then hoping that uh, or, or just expanding unnecessarily fast without uh, you know, tracking these parameters in mind. So this international expansion, you need to have like some foundation, but knowing a little bit on the region, we talk about Southeast Asia, but at the end, I mean, you have very different realities in, in each of the in each of the countries across the region. And I mean, with your experience, having invested in a lot of companies in, in the area, I'm pretty sure that you have like a like a surprising localization that is necessary in some of the different markets. So for companies that are expanding to, to Indonesia, what do you think are the like the low-hanging fruits in terms of, uh, of localizations that they need to consider? I mean, what have you seen among your portfolio companies? And I'm not sure if you can share any, any example uh, of, uh, without disclosing anything confidential for any company to, to illustrate that need for localization. Um, for Indonesia itself, the important thing to note is that, as we mentioned way earlier in this uh, podcast, it's got a lot of islands. Uh, it's got 17,000 islands. But you don't have to go to every island simply because the most of the population is concentrated in uh, Java. Java is the huge island that contains the key cities of Jakarta, uh, Surabaya, and Bandung. And it has 145 million population, which is about half of the entire Indonesia already. Because Indonesia has about 250 million or so population. So concentrate on Java itself. But because the whole island is so big, you want to really concentrate on the major cities of Jakarta and the major city of Surabaya. And so one of our startups went over to uh, Indonesia much earlier on and decided to focus its energies on Jakarta itself. And what was surprising is that uh, many years ago, despite all the hype and so on about venture investments going into Indonesia and companies like Gojek at a point in time and Grab at a point in time was uh, uh, being created and so on, the population just weren't that savvy enough yet at that point in time. We come from a, a day come at a point in time, there was a period when most people are still uh, not on the 3G. Uh, most people were still on feature phones and not on Android phones. And that transition was just beginning. And we needed really uh, one ignition point. And that ignition point came in the form of uh, Gojek and Grab, where people realized that, well, I better buy low-end Android phone so that I can get my uh, transformation anywhere. And that really started the ball rolling uh, in terms of getting all the other apps in place. So for the learning point for that particular company of ours, which went over there early on, was this education process at the macro level for the entire population, digitizing and so on, let someone else take on the challenge. 
let someone else who is maybe even better capitalize, take on that challenge. And we will come along just a bit later on and ride on the same growth that happens. So every time you talk about, about Southeast Asia, Indonesia will be like a overly present like country because the size of the of the market with, as you said, you know, the ability to create even like single country unicorns, which is not something that a lot of countries can, uh, can create. That also brings in a lot of attention. So there's also very fierce competition. Which market do you think is a, is a good early adopter market for um, startups that are not from that country to try to, to expand and to start operations in that area? I mentioned earlier that the whole of Indonesia itself is equivalent to a Shandong lab. I want to correct myself. It's equivalent to Shanghai or the greater Shanghai area, or Suzhou and so on. So it's, it's no more bigger than that. So you, when a Chinese company comes over, any other company goes into Indonesia itself, it's huge, definitely, in terms of population, but uh, really is no different from uh, one Shanghai itself. So number one, if I were talking to Chinese companies, the number one thing I'll say is, do you really need to be in Indonesia? Or would you rather be in somewhere else, like Singapore, Malaysia, or India for that matter? Is Indonesia really that key of a market for you? And if proving Indonesia going to result in you being able to prove Philippines or Myanmar or any other markets out there, and most of the competition, if you look at even the big boys like Tencent, which came in with their WeChat, tends to be, okay, if I have proven uh, myself in Jakarta or Indonesia, it doesn't matter to the rest of Southeast Asia, which is why WeChat and so on have pretty much all but pulled out from, uh, from Indonesia. Um, so again, what does Jakarta or Indonesia do to your story? Uh, and for most startups, uh, the story for me would be, how is it going to help you in the next round of fundraising? What kind of matrix are you be able to show that can aid you in your next round of fundraising? Uh, is Jakarta necessarily a place to be in? And we have seen unicorns created not just from large markets like Indonesia, but also from markets like Singapore, where it's so small, it's no more than an island uh, that you can plug into from China or Indonesia and so on. But it is significant enough that you can create unicorns from here. Grab is now here, and uh, we recently have a new unicorn called PetSnap, which is international from day one. It's an international product uh, just because of what it does from IP, uh, intellectual property, uh, identification and selection and so on. And so you can create very viable internationally focused products from Singapore uh, if, if you're in that space. So again, coming back to Southeast Asia itself or a company coming, uh, thinking about expanding into Southeast Asia, you don't have to necessarily go to Indonesia or Vietnam or any of those large markets. You can create very viable unicorns uh, from your home in Malaysia, in Singapore, smaller countries, uh, if your product is international or regional. So if you are starting from Indonesia and you are thinking about uh, internationalization, which market do you think would be the next one that would be the most interesting one? Do you have any company that in your portfolio from Indonesia that actually went through that uh, internationalization process? Um, we have companies in our portfolio that went through the internationalization process, but it always starts with regionalization first before we go internationalization. And for the companies in Indonesia, I would say that until today, not many of them, in fact, none, maybe except for one, they are not thinking about regionalization or internationalization just because the Indonesian market is big enough uh, for them to focus their early stage energies on 
I'm not discounting the fact that when they are at Series B or C, they will get a push from their investors to go beyond Indonesia. But their predecessors, their big brothers in the form of Gojek, Kalapa and so on, all those unicorns in Indonesia have proven that you can be in one country and still be a very sizable unicorn. My question then is, well, Indonesia is big, but not as big as China. You can have a very, very big unicorn like Mekuan or Alibaba and so on in China itself. And even until today, uh, many, many years, more, more than a decade since Alibaba was founded, and almost a decade since Meituan was founded, and you are still pretty much at home in mainland China itself. But can you, as a running a Indonesian startup in Indonesia, still focus on just Indonesia at year 10 or more than a decade later? The chances are you probably can't, and you'll probably be like Gojek, trying to find its footing outside of Indonesia after almost a decade and then struggling. Because at that point in time, the rest of the region and the rest of the world already have very sizable, very viable competing products to Gojek, which is going to take a challenge to compete against them. Yeah, I mean, definitely having a domestic, uh, a very large domestic market, it obviously makes easier to, to scale locally. But uh, but that might actually be in the, um, the challenge that made Gojek spend more time in, uh, in Indonesia, uh, whereas... Uh, because they had such a large market, whereas um, in the case of Grab, they saw the need for internationalization relatively early. And once you have the, um, the, the, all the infrastructure to be able to, to run two countries, adding a third one, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's definitely easier than, um, than when, you, when you don't have any experience of running in, a, in multiple jurisdictions with um, languages, um, legal frameworks, uh, offices, etc. There is nothing wrong in pulling back if the decision was wrong and then reconsidering everything and then going in with some other strategy. So using uh, Carosa as an example, uh, they went into, uh, they started from Singapore and they went into Malaysia. And very quickly, everyone realized that uh, Malaysia was not uh, going to be uh, easy. And the team really decided to shift their strategy and the acquisition opportunity uh, emerged because just because the Carousel example really ignited a lot of copycats uh, across the region. And there were similar uh, competitors in uh, Malaysia and also in other cities uh, where it became very viable acquisition opportunities where now, of course, Carousel gets to acquire a very good team and a very good product and so on and so forth and get into a new market. So it's nothing wrong with pulling back and then reconsidering, do we want to do so organically or inorganically? One of the things that we've seen in marketplaces that sometimes the innovation can come from very different very different areas. No? And, and particularly, I think China has been pretty interesting at, at thinking about changes to the traditional uh, revenue, revenue model. No? You look at cases like Taobao, which is like an e-commerce marketplace. The more traditional approach has always been taking a, a cat on the transactions. But Taobao realized that, well, that was preventing, that was kind of like encouraging people to transact outside and they, they were kind of like missing on everything. And they created this business model that was based more on um, on advertisement and, and services to the to the merchants that were trying to sell to that market. You have invested in a few companies in the region. What type of uh, localization of, uh, of uh, revenue models or create biz- uh, revenue models have you seen in your portfolio? Uh, Oscar, I think you brought up a very good example of how Taobao uh, recognized that consumers didn't want to pay extra or they don't want to have some of their revenue going away to the platform. So one of our companies, uh, Carousel, 
also saw that from uh, very early on. And perhaps they took their inspiration from Tencent for all we know, but they saw that very early on and they were very sponge in uh, rejecting um, investors' requests and so on to monetize. So they grew very big, quite fast. And there was just a lot of liquidity on the platform. And investors, uh, especially the later stage investors, were all asking them, when are you going to turn on the tab? Media were all asking the question of, when are you going to turn on the revenue tab, monetization tab, and so on. And they resisted. And the reason is very simple. I don't think, and they obviously don't think that they have built enough of a critical mass to begin any monetization. As Quaxiuri, uh, the CEO, is fond of saying, we are just 1% done. There's still a lot to do. So if we were to turn it on quite fast, I think a lot of the uh, consumers may just leave the platform uh, without even discovering the other verticals or the other features on the platform. For example, today, their carousel is no longer just selling pre-loved uh, products uh, or small small products like your laptop or your mouse or your iPad and iPhone. They're also doing huge transactions like houses and cars. And the sensible thing to do when uh, doing such, uh, such transactions or such a, a variety of transactions is to monetize where it matters. If you were to monetize off a large transaction, say a house or a car or anything like that, it's definitely going to be worth a lot more than you monetize off a smaller transaction like a mouse or iPad or iPhone or something like that. So, but without having done through, gone through that earlier route of having people be, com- be comfortable selling the iPhone on the platform, they will never have gotten to a, to a way that uh, they can now sell large ticket items like houses and, and cars. So it's a journey that they need to get there. And I'll say that the founders have done themselves very well by not just listening to investors' pressure, but really focusing on their inner compass, which is to monetize only when the time is right. Yeah, that's quite a, yeah, sometimes uh, marketplaces need to use some of the transactions to drive traffic and to drive engagement. So by the time the, the opportunities to really monetize come, you are in the back mind of uh, of your consumers. That's actually a very interesting concept. Outside of the product type of marketplaces, what type of, um, of uh, services have you seen? Obviously, Grab and Gojek are, are examples that are well known in the space, but all of them, they really fast branch out into additional services to like cover a bigger area what type of service type of uh, marketplaces have you have you seen in the region that you think are particularly interesting so we beyond carousel which we've talked about for a while on, on the show um, there are also other uh, marketplaces that we have invested in we have also invested in vehicle mobile automobile marketplace we've also invested in fashion marketplace and I can go on probably sports marketplace and so on and so forth so for in terms of services we are seeing that not just due to COVID, but pre-COVID, there were already uh, just a lot of comfort in transacting uh, something from somewhere, someone else online and having it delivered to you, not, not hours later, like in China, but days later. That, that comfort is really there. It doesn't require any more encouragement. And then COVID really just uh, sped everything up. Now everybody is just very comfortable doing so. And so those platforms that are really doing well, for example, um, I mentioned vehicle marketplace like Car- Caro that is doing very well are now saying, okay, what about my expansion other cities? Because other cities are also experiencing COVID uh, and so on. And no one is going to go to a car show anytime soon, but they don't mind buying something online and the comfort is there. And when they hear that it's a trustworthy brand somewhere else like in Singapore and so on, that, that, that trust index is just going to be much better. And so we are seeing people leverage on the strengths that they've built in any other city 
and then transplanting it to elsewhere. Good. Okay. One of the things that sometimes makes the, the marketplace more appealing is the fact that um, marketplaces will have a higher revenue multiple when investors look at them. How do you see that in Southeast Asia? What, what is the ratio that you're seeing between comparing e-commerce, traditional e-commerce, B2C e-commerce to marketplaces? Oh, in terms of multiples or how we value a company when they are marketplace versus their e-commerce, you can assume that we are following the pretty much the same matrix that uh, people use around the world, whether it's in Silicon Valley or whether it's in China. Uh, it's very similar. Uh, what will be different will be in terms of the multiple that we place on each one. For example, in China itself, we generally place a premium on pretty much everything. So you can look at, say, for example, the revenue or you look at GMT and so on. And in China itself, I would say the multiple is a bit higher or way higher than what we see here in Southeast Asia. And it's not because there's a half the population in Southeast Asia versus China itself. It's also because of all the other factors that we talked about earlier in this show, which is that you have different regulations, you have people at different stages of their economic cycle or development and so on. So half the population of China, uh, yes, but really very different economic cycle. James, thank you very much for sharing today and give us more understanding on both marketplaces in general and also marketplaces across the region in Southeast Asia. So if any founders that are building companies in that area or any founders that are trying to expand into, into Southeast Asia on their marketplaces want to reach out to Quest Ventures, what's the best way to connect with you? Well, uh, Oscar, it was a pleasure being on this uh, podcast. Uh, founders who are interested in uh, having a conversation with us are encouraged to go to our website, www.questventures.com. We also look forward to receiving your idea or business proposal through our email address, businessplan at questventures.com. Good. Awesome. Great. Thank you very much, James. Great pleasure to have you today here. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Like, share, and subscribe to the Asia Startup Pulse podcast and sign up to our newsletter to never miss another episode.